You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. With this sixth lecture in our series on the spiritual life, we turn now to somewhat more practical topics, and from Lecture 6 through Lecture 12, we'll try to deal with one or another of the practical aspects of the spiritual life. I'd like to begin in this lecture with some considerations about the purgative way, and in particular about conversion from sin. First, it's important, I think, to consider the nature of sin and its types, original sin, mortal sin, venial sin, and then to consider as we go things about temptation and the structure of temptation and ways to avoid such temptation and falling into it. First, the nature of sin. It is, by its definition, an offense against God and His law. One sins by any deliberate thought, word, or deed against the covenant that God has made with man. I emphasize deliberate, for it is not a matter of accidentally doing something, but a matter of doing something and knowing it and choosing it. The covenant that we speak of with God was brought to its full expression in Christ and yet began to be articulated from the opening pages of the Old Testament, began to be articulated by God in his first dealings. One speaks about the covenant already with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant especially with Abraham, the covenant with Moses and with David. And then one turns to that wondrous passage in Jeremiah in which there is promise of a new and eternal covenant, the covenant that we have with Christ. It comes then to its full expression, an expression which takes up and completes everything that was expressed beforehand, in Christ who directs us to love God with all our mind and heart and soul and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the central portion, the central tenets of that covenant. Every sin, whatever its particular type, is a distortion of the order of charity, a deviation from our true ultimate end of union with God and love of Him. And ultimately, sin comes out to being some form of excessive self-love, a self-love that is wrongly ordered, because there is rightly ordered self-love, but rather sin is a kind of excessive, a deficient, a disordered self-love that is set in opposition to the love we ought to have for God. We consider then the types of sin, especially original sin, mortal sin, and venial sin, crucial categories for the understanding of spiritual theology. Original sin was only an actual sin, that is, one really committed with knowledge and consent, by Adam and Eve. But its effects have affected the rest of the human race, everyone except the Blessed Virgin Mary, who was immaculately conceived and who remained all her life without sin. We tend to experience the wound left by original sin in things like our darkened intellects, in our weakened wills, and in our own disordered inclinations, that is, various predispositions that we have to commit actual sins. And those predispositions need to be reordered and corrected and healed by God's grace and by our free response as part of the effort at Christian perfection. 
Now to ponder this a little more deeply for the sake of theology of the spiritual life, we do well, I think, to ponder how this distortion in the order of our loves exists in us, how we experience it. And I think we can do this by calling upon some of the material that we discussed earlier on in our course, some of the thing about the way in which the order of loves occurs in the Trinity. First, instead of always being generous with our love like God the Father, who freely gives his eternal Son all that he is, and whose free choice to create the universe then pours out the goodness of the whole divine trinity into what had no being, no goodness of its own, namely creation, for we believe that everything in this whole universe was created and created good by God, but created out of nothing. He pours his goodness of the whole divine trinity into creation. But instead of loving with that kind of generosity, the love with which the Father loved the Son, the love with which the trinity loves the world, Instead of doing this, we tend by our nature only to love what we perceive as good. This is the very structure of the will, that the will needs to be informed by the intellect about what is good, and hence we get at least what appears to us as good because we can make mistakes with our intellect, and that's a part of the darkening of our intellects, that we do not always judge rightly. Hence we tend automatically and spontaneously to love that which appears as good, that's fine. That's the way our nature is. But here's where the original sin comes in in its effect. While we tend to love naturally and spontaneously what appears to us as good, we tend not to love what does not strike us as good. There tends not to be that same generosity, that same willingness to put goodness in where we don't find it that God had exhibited. Now if left unchecked, this refusal to love anything except what strikes us as love worthy can altogether too easily make us prone. It leads us altogether too easily towards selfishness, as if everything existed for our sake and that the only thing that we ever needed to do is to love what is love-worthy. But think of which of us would have gotten anywhere in life if we only were loved when we truly were love-worthy and instead received the love as we did, even when we were not or have not been love-worthy when we've received the unconditional love of our parents or received love from another who made us better by the love that that other gave us. Secondly, unlike the receptivity of the Son, who gratefully receives all that he is from his Father and who then freely pours out his goodness in being the one who was sent and went freely to redeem the world, instead of having that receptivity and that gratitude that is ready to pour itself out in turn for having received everything so generously, we tend to fear that we will not receive love unless we are perceived as worthy of another's love. Just think for a minute about how that psychic inversion works. Namely, we think that we will only spontaneously give our love to what strikes us as love worthy. And then it flips around in our mind. If we'll only love what is love-worthy, we can easily fall into thinking that we will only receive love if we seem love-worthy to others. If that's the case, if that is allowed to have its sway, the temptation, the inclination, the proclivity on our part, the effect of original sin, will be to start manipulating things in such a way that we'll start appearing love-worthy to others. Thirdly, Unlike the Holy Spirit, 
who loves with the love of delight in the perfect giving and the perfect receiving between the Father and the Son. He is one who can see the Father's gift of great generosity and can see the Son's love of perfect receptivity and take delight and glory in it. It is part of the effulgence and part of the glory of God. Instead of that, how altogether too often we tend to be envy and jealous of others who are giving and receiving, especially when we're not part of it. And this is a proclivity, I think, that is an effect of original sin, an inclination to be jealous and be envious. And hence, in response, we tend to try to make ourselves into the center of attention in a kind of idolatry. Although afflicted by the effects of original sin, we nonetheless are not utterly incapacitated. Our nature isn't destroyed. There remains a nature there, admittedly wounded. Hence, in the description of human nature, that must be taken into account when trying to give a theology of the spiritual life and attend to sin and to temptation and to what resources we have for resisting temptation, we do have to be mindful of the resources that we have by our nature. Namely, we have an intelligence, which at least in principle, and if cultivated, is capable of knowing what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. And this intelligence is instructed by the natural law, such that there are some things that we cannot not know. There are some things that even strike the smallest child as being unfair and unjust when treated differently than its peers. And that strong sense of what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, does remain in us, although we must, in the education and proper formation of our conscience, have an education of that conscience. We must cultivate the intelligence so that we start to learn what is truly right and wrong, what is truly good and bad, even though we have some of this innately within us as a principle for our judgment. Secondly, we also have, as an abiding part of our nature, free choice of the will. As we have been focusing in these lectures, the extent of our knowledge and the strength of our willpower varies enormously over time. In any given case, when we are confronted by many perceived goods, at least in principle we have the free will by which we can choose to pursue and seek that good, or choose to resist it and not to seek it. But there are times when our free choice of the will is overwhelmed, when we have too strong a passion that is afflicting us, too strong a desire, and when we say we do not have enough willpower. It is never that all willpower is removed from us. It is never that the power of free choice is taken from us, but the power may be slight, the power may be minimal, and may need to be built up again. Hence, what we're saying here is that there are some resources that remain in us, intelligence and free choice of the will. And if they are sufficiently present, they will make it possible for us to make a choice, at least in principle, in any given case. We are then responsible for the choices we make, and hence capable of sin, as well as capable of virtue. To return to the general point, actual sin is an offense against God that we knowingly and deliberately commit by our free choice. Here we get to the difference then between mortal and venial sin as the church understands it, and it arises from a difference in the gravity of the offense. In the case of a serious offense, such as a violation of one of the Ten Commandments, the sin is called mortal precisely because it is so deadly, for it destroys the life of sanctifying grace in the soul and alienates the individual from God. While even one such sin has devastating effects, 
The habit of such sins brings the person to have a real tendency, not just a tendency of a neutral order, but a tendency of a very deep-seated characteristic, such as the things that are named by the capital sins, pride, gluttony, lust, avarice, sloth, envy, and anger. The deeper understanding of those will have to be remitted to a course in moral theology, but I would also very much challenge any person anxious for a challenge to consideration especially of the purgatory of Dante. And in the course of that purgatorio, he uses these seven capital sins as the organizational structure for the levels of Mount Purgatory that Dante and his guide Virgil must climb. And at each level, there's an absolutely wonderful poetic description of what it is that is involved in these serious habits of sin and how it is to be corrected. The kind of remedial punishment that Dante envisions as taking place in purgatory in contrast to the purely penal remedies that are involved in his Inferno. By contrast with mortal sins, we have venial sins. Venial sins are more of a deviation rather than a total aversion from our ultimate end, for they tend to lack the malice that is associated with mortal sin. Some venial sins involve a disorder by the very nature of their act, and yet it's only a small one, such as a small lie that does no damage. Others amount only to a slight disorder because the object was small. So, for instance, the theft of a tiny amount of change. But in other cases, the sin is considered venial, not because of the object of the act, but simply because the person did not have sufficient deliberation, did not give full consent of the will, and thus was not found as guilty of the same malice. It is always a difficult matter of sorting this out, but in general as a test, what one must have for mortal sin and what distinguishes it from venial sin is a really grave subject. One must really know and one must really choose it. And shy of that, we say that it is not mortal sin, but something of a venial order because there is some disorder and offense to God which ought to be corrected and which needs to be healed. There are many other distinctions that will need to be made in a course in moral theology, including the distinction between some of the factors that can mitigate our responsibility. For instance, there's the question of how much we know and how much we could have known and how much we should have known. This is usually thought about as the distinction between vincible and invincible ignorance. There's the question about habits. For instance, the ways in which a habit, especially a habit of sin, might diminish the freedom that we have in subsequent cases. Then we're clearly responsible for having gotten such a bad habit, but the amount of freedom that we might have thereafter might be considerably less, and hence our responsibility might be mitigated. There are problems with weakness of the will that need to be thought about very carefully here in consideration of questions of conscience. But for present purposes in this course on spiritual theology, I think it's important that we turn the rest of this lecture to topics of a practical nature like resisting our temptations and conversion from sin. Let's consider the topic especially of temptation. Christian tradition has often spoken of three important sources of temptation. By the typical phrasing, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Taken these as sources of temptation against which we need to be particularly on guard. In the first, the world. Secondly, I'll cover the flesh, and thirdly, the devil, taking them each in turn and trying to clarify what these phrases mean. In the first case, the world. Contrary to those schools of thought 
that regard the world as illusory, like Buddhism, or regard the world as intrinsically wicked, like Manichaeism, in some of its ancient, medieval, or contemporary forms, Christianity always affirms that the world and everything in it were created by God and created as good, who looked upon what he made and saw that it was good. I refer, of course, to the first several chapters of the book of Genesis. The problem, as St. Augustine often made clear, is with our becoming so attached to the things of this world as to forget the proper order of our loves that God has established. What we must constantly remember and what St. Augustine insists upon is that the supreme good, that is God, must be loved most of all, with all our mind and heart and soul and strength. We need to love him first, and then secondly, to love our neighbors as ourselves. They are on the same level and on par with ourselves, not just family, not just friends, but every neighbor. I think Augustine is very mindful of that parable of the Good Samaritan and that haunting question of who is our neighbor. It is a strong sense of the need to love our neighbors as ourselves precisely because we see in our neighbor and ought to see in ourselves precisely the image of God whose likeness needs to be respected and restored. And then, says St. Augustine, and rightly, everything else on the face of the world has a certain goodness, and yet it's a goodness of a certain order, a goodness of a certain hierarchy of being. And all these things, all the rest of the things in creation, should never be loved for themselves the way God is, nor loved as ourself the way our neighbor is, but rather should be loved in a proper proportion, in proportion to their usefulness in general, and especially in proportion to their usefulness in helping us to the love and service of God. In my own tradition, namely the Jesuit tradition, a Jesuit order founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Ignatius tries to capture this point in a very important document that I think we should consider for a moment. It is something found near the beginning of his book, The Spiritual Exercises, and it's called The First Principle and Foundation. He then tries to bring out the implications of this insight in a strategy for living that may at first seem to be a bit surprising, but that actually is very, very deep, something he learned from the Desert Fathers whom he loved to read and contemplate, something about cultivating a kind of indifference, not indifference in the sense of apathy, but rather indifference in the sense of a detachment from the goods of the world. Let me quote from St. Ignatius. Man is created to praise, reverence, and serve God our Lord, and by this means to save his soul. The other things on the face of this earth are created for man to help him in attaining the end for which he is created. Hence, man is to make use of them insofar as they help him in the attainment of his end, and he must rid himself of them insofar as they prove a hindrance to him. Therefore, Ignatius says, we must make ourselves indifferent to all created things as far as we are allowed free choice and are not under any prohibition. Consequently, as far as we are concerned, we should not prefer health to sickness, riches to poverty, honor to dishonor, a long life to a short life. The same holds for all other things. Our one desire and choice should be for what is more conducive to the end for which we are created. As I say, some of the things that he there recommends can seem a little surprising, and yet they are the perfect and accurate deduction from the premise, namely, that everything else in the order of the hierarchy of goods in the world, as St. Augustine testifies to us, 
should be loved only in proportion as they are useful. And then Ignatius reminds us, to the rest we cultivate a certain indifference. What Christian writers like Thomas Akempis, Augustine, or Ignatius, who speak of the world as an enemy, then mean, is that a worldly spirit of excessive attachment to such created things as riches, fame, comfort, or pleasure can well be an obstacle to our sanctification. While some individuals may have the liberty to follow the counsel of those desert fathers who simply fled the world, most of us need to remain in the world and thus need, above all, to put on the mind of Christ so that we will be in the world, but not of it. Among the most important counsels needed to do this are the following. First, be concerned only for the will of God and try to be indifferent to what the world may say or think. Another one, call to mind the vanity of worldliness and the quickness with which time passes. You can hear Thomas Akempis saying those things. Even while trying to do what is just and right in this world, we need to remember that we are pilgrims bound for heaven and that we have no lasting city here in this world. That's Augustine's advice. The more we come to self-knowledge, the more we will become aware of where our personal weaknesses are so that we can avoid occasions of sin and practice self-denial and self-control. This is something counseled to us even in the act of contrition. Let me turn to the second of the great temptations, the flesh. Once again, it is important to distinguish genuine Christianity from any such view as Manichaeism or Puritanism, with their suspicions that the body is intrinsically evil and that only the spirit is good. Authentic Christianity regards the human person as a unity of body and soul, made good by God, but subject to misuse. What Christians mean when they say that the flesh can be an enemy is the distortions that can so easily be introduced into the order of our loves by our instinctive revulsion from pain and suffering, and thus a weakening in our desire for perfection, as well as by cravings for pleasure that can become insatiable if we let them, and thus even threaten our very salvation. To counter the understandable fears of suffering, a person can do well to at least try to make gradual progress by learning to undertake to do one's duties more quickly and cheerfully, especially figuring out what is really unpleasant. I often think that a good strategy for Lent is to avoid complaining. But secondly, to accept sufferings that come into one's life as a sharing in the cross of Christ and to embrace certain mortifications voluntarily, such as fasting, but always to do so under the care of a good spiritual director or at least a confessor. The love of pleasure which many spiritual writers call by the name concupiscence, can be a very great opportunity for certain useful practices of asceticism, especially when any such asceticism is combined with real prayer, as well as an avoidance of thinking that all pleasure is sinful. At the natural level, it is possible even in one's daily life to practice the custody of the senses, that is, some caution about what one sees and hears, why, just think of the kind of discretion that one ought to use in considering how to look at television or what films to go to. One does this practicing a custody of the senses, lest one's imagination become too easily aroused. One can also do it by practicing a certain self-denial. Many saints have really prospered by limiting the amount of pleasure or satisfaction that they took, even in what was legitimate. And then, at the very simple level, by simply keeping busy, for idleness is the devil's workshop, 
and a great opportunity for letting in certain illegitimate forms of pleasure-seeking. But in all of this, in all of these ways of resisting temptation and of converting from sin, it is very important to use spiritual remedies, including the reception of the sacraments of penance and of Holy Communion, precisely so that we will be strengthened against temptation. It is important to use remedies like meditation, meditation on such subjects as our own intrinsic dignity as human beings, sort of asking, would someone who is the image of God be doing what we were just tempted to do? And likewise, we do well to meditate on likely punishments that will be due to our sins. This is part of the joy of a Christian reading Dante. Part of his own efforts in writing that poem were a consideration of why it is that one would want to avoid such sins precisely because one will want to avoid the punishments that he associated with them. But we also can with great profit meditate, not just during Lent, but all the year round, as the Passionists are rightly inclined to do, upon the passion and suffering of Christ. And we turn briefly to the third of the great temptations, the devil. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis shows us the devil priding himself on having made the modern world so very forgetful of his very existence, so that he can thereby work all the more successfully. But authentic Christian tradition finds ample evidence in the scriptures, thinking of Genesis 3.1 and thereafter, as well as in the constant experience of Christians throughout history for the reality of the devil and his demons. Perhaps it is because human nature stays the same that the tactics of the devil tend to stay the same, and they tend to be very consistent. Sometimes the devil operates by raising questions, trying to give a person doubt about faith in what God teaches. Sometimes the devil operates by suggesting gross pleasures to us, sometimes by covering evil with the appearance of good and playing on a person's pride. The most important course for resisting temptation was provided by Jesus himself when he warned his disciples to watch and pray lest they fall into temptation. He was so careful to include within what we call the Lord's Prayer, the advice that we pray that we not be tempted. Watchfulness, therefore, is very crucial because the devil may sometimes seem to leave us in peace, only to resume his temptations later on when we have our guard down. Prayer is indispensable, for we need supernatural grace to resist a supernatural foe. Think, if you will, about our Lord himself when tempted in the desert. We talk about those temptations, and even though they are described in but a few verses in the Gospel, I think that we need to understand them as real temptations that he suffered. He himself was able to come up with wondrous lines of Scripture that corrected the deceit and the deception that the devil was proposing. And yet even if we are incapable of generating a line of Scripture as absolutely relevant to the situation as our Lord did, we knew well, I think, at least by calling a temptation by its proper name and then saying, no way, Jose. And if that's all we can think of, at least by having called it a temptation, namely said to ourselves, this is really an inclination to pride, or this is really a lustful feeling that I am having, or I'm nursing my grudges, even calling it by its proper name and then remembering to utter a short prayer begins the process of the resistance of temptation. Among the other helpful techniques encouraged by spiritual writers, there is a great insistence on the regular examination of conscience, and we'll turn to that in Lecture 12. The reason for this, of course, is 
that care in evaluating the various stirrings and promptings that we experience in the course of the day not only has retrospective advantages, letting us look back upon what we have been doing so that we'll be better prepared for a good confession, but also prospective advantages. I find that when I'm doing the examination of conscience regularly, it's not just that I know what I have done, but I'm more mindful right at the time of stirrings and promptings from the good spirit, as well as from the evil spirit, or just from somewhere in my own life. And we can become more alert to detecting the devil's whispers and the devil's footprints, even while we are becoming more docile to the promptings of the good spirits, extremely crucial for progress in the spiritual life. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.